Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Matthew 18 and Luke 10. A lot of wonderful stuff today. In Matthew 18, we're going to start with a very odd question the disciples ask, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We'll talk about what do we do when someone has offended us? What do we do when someone has offended the church? We'll talk about the rule of offenses. And then we'll talk about the parable of the unmerciful servant, or what's commonly called the parable of the 10,000 talents. That's a really good story. Then jumping into Luke 10, we start off with the 70 leaving on their missions. Now Luke's going to present their return in the same chapter, which is a little misleading because it was a little longer than that's going to lead you to believe. And then in Luke 10, we'll look at the allegory of the Good Samaritan. Now that story is a really good story that answers the question, who is my neighbor? And how do I love them? And then we'll finally end this podcast with a beautiful little exchange between Mary, Martha, and the Savior in their home in Bethany. So with that, let's start at the top. Let's go to Matthew 18, verse 1. Now, I don't understand the setting here. And maybe it was their inexperience, because I can't imagine the current Quorum of the Twelve having this discussion. But someday we'd like to know what prompted this discussion, because I just can't imagine people who've been around Jesus, even for a moment, asking this question. But it is a great question for him to answer. And the question is, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, if that was asked humbly, like I'd like to assume it was, then you and I should perk up our ears and say, okay, this is a great doctrine to understand. Is there a hierarchy in the celestial kingdom? And if so, who is at the top? It says that he called a little child unto them and set him in the midst of them. And he said, verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I really like this commentary from Craig Keener, and he wrote this, Some Jewish texts speak of different rewards and ranks in the kingdom. Rank and status were issues that members of ancient society confronted daily. Jewish sources valued the virtue of humility, often extolling rabbis who humbled themselves, for example, before other rabbis or before their parents. Yet such humility was rarely expressed towards children or by exalting children. So I think Jesus is undoing a lot of their expectations. There's not a lot of things exalting children in Jesus's day. And I think what he's trying to do is open their minds. Now, one way I like to read this is just the way that children are quick to forgive. I remember being a child and being in a fight with one of my friends, and literally the same day, everything was well. We, we had uh, fixed our differences, and we were back to hanging out. And I really think that that is one of the ways that Jesus is expressing to his followers that we need to be like little children, because I think it just segues right into the rest of his discourse where he's talking about offenses and being offended. And I think sometimes as adults, we kind of hold these grudges for a long time, and it ought not to be. So I think if we read it that way, if we kind of take the first few verses of Matthew 18, I think it would just naturally follow that that's probably what he's talking about. And so I like that as one interpretation. I think that would lead to a wonderful discussion. What are the qualities of children, childlike, not childish? What are childlike qualities that would cause Jesus to say, this is the kind of person who would be considered greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I remember when my oldest was four years old, and we had just purchased some apples at the store, and as we were driving out of the store, there was a man holding a sign who was homeless, and my four-year-old started to ask a whole bunch of questions. Dad, why is that man holding the sign? Well, he's asking for food, sweetheart. And then that just beautiful response of a child. Dad, we should give him some food. Well, what should we give him? Dad, let's give him the apples. And that was the thing we bought at the store that she was the most excited about. This store had some fresh apples right out of the mountains, and it was just one of our favorite treats. And she just quickly, Dad, let's give him our apples. 
And so we handed him our apples, and she was so happy to do it. But then the conversation continued. Dad, where, where does he live? Sweetie, I don't think he has a house. I think that's why he's asking for food. And then that sweet, generous heart of a four-year-old little girl. Dad, we should invite him to come to live at our house. Well, where would he sleep, sweetie? We don't have any beds. Dad, he can have my bed. I'd be happy. I'd sleep on the floor and he could have my bed. And it just was such a lesson on every good quality, just the childlike qualities that I need to possess if I even want to enter the kingdom of heaven, much less be great in it. I remember being a little kid asking some of those same questions. It brings back some of the things I remember. So quick to forgive, so quick to give and be generous. And they don't see what often adults see and the prejudices that sometimes adults have. And I think there's the lesson. Don't be childish. Be childlike. And every one of those beautiful childlike qualities is what is needed to get into the kingdom. And the people who possess those are the ones that will do the greatest work within the celestial kingdom. So great lesson. And it highlights the Savior's love for children. This is now going to lead into a discussion on offenses and and dealing with offenses. But he does underline it with a discussion about children. He says in verse 10, take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. Yeah. Look in Matthew 18, verse 6. Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, a millstone was a really big stone that you would put uh, grain on, and then you would lower another stone onto it, and then you would turn those stones, and that top stone would rotate, and it would kind of ground up the wheat into flour. And so to put a millstone around their neck, I mean, this is clearly hyperbole, but what, what he's saying is it's better for the offender to experience that than it is to be allowed to offend the little one. So we want to protect the innocent. I remind you of that beautiful moment in Third Nephi where Jesus gathers the children, and then he prays, and then he groans. Jesus groans when he gathers the children. He groans for the wickedness of the house of Israel. Now, I think one way to look at that is he was groaning for wickedness in general. But in America, all the celestial people had been destroyed. The people that were left were good terrestrial or celestial people. And I just, I wonder if Jesus is groaning in the presence of the children because he's even worried about their parents loving them enough. I think often about Jesus holding my children and groaning and wondering, boy, really, Lord, you, you, you put these beautiful children in Bryce's care? Is it, I'm worried about that, Bryce, and, and that really compels me to understand how he feels about children. Woe to those who offend children or despise, and I think we could add the word neglect. Woe unto all those who offend, despise, or neglect one of these little ones. I think you're going to have to deal with the wrath of the Savior. This quotation from Boyd K. Packer, when I heard it, shook me and it has caused no end of pondering in my heart. Boyd K. Packer said the following towards the end of his ministry, Like my brethren, I have traveled all over the world. Like my brethren, I have held positions of trust in education, in business, in government, and in the church. I have written books, and like them have received honors, degrees, certificates, plaques. Such honors come with the territory and are undeserved assessing the value of those things. The one thing I treasure more than any of them, more than all of them put together, the thing of most value to me is how our sons and daughters and their husbands and wives treat their children and how in turn our grandchildren treat their little ones. Isn't that fascinating? An apostle at the twilight of his ministry, looking back on everything that he's learned, he says the most important thing to him is how his children treat their children. Absolutely. When it comes to dealing with offenses, note the progression. 
First, in Matthew 18, 1 through 6, we're dealing with saving the person who is harmed. We want to save the little ones. But then note that we want to protect the body. And I think in one sense, we can read this as the body of the church. And so we read the council in verse 8 and 9, where he says, if your hand offends you, cut your hand off. In verse 9, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Now, he said that earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. And in my lesson, as I talked with the youth, I said, okay, did Jesus mean this literally? And the youth kind of looked at each other, and we kind of thought about it, and I, and I told them, no, the, Jesus isn't saying that we need to literally cut off our hand or cut off our foot or pluck out our eye. And so then I asked them, okay, well, what do you think he means by this? And one of my students said, uh, well, I think what he means is if there's something in your life that's causing you to offend God or to offend others, then stop doing that or cut that thing out of your life. And I really see that in the context of the church. Jesus could be talking about the church or the body of Christ, and we've got to protect that body. And there are things that can cause you to lose your membership in the kingdom for a time, and there's a reason why. We've got to protect people. Mike, in the Book of Mormon, when Alma the Elder finally comes back to Zarahemla and he's put in charge of the church, and then there's some transgressors, and Alma doesn't know what to do, and so he takes him to King Mosiah, and Mosiah says, no, 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 they haven't offended the law of the land, they've offended the church, so you need to deal with them. So Alma is really concerned because he never really had to deal with church discipline before, so he takes it to the Lord, and the Lord teaches the following in Mosiah 26, he says, Wherefore I say unto you, go, and whosoever transgresseth against me, him shall ye judge according to the sins which he hath committed. If he confess his sins before thee and me, and repent in the sincerity of his heart, him shall ye forgive, and I will forgive him also. And whosoever will not repent of his sins, the same shall not be numbered among my people. And this shall ye be observed from this time forward. So then Alma goes out and it says, whosoever repented of their sins, them he did number among the people of the church. Those that would not confess their sins and repent of their iniquity, the same were not numbered among the people of the church, and their names were blotted out. And it came to pass that Alma did regulate all the affairs of the church. So there are things that will keep you from joining the church. And those very things might cause you to have to be removed from the church if they're not repented of. Yeah. And then Jesus talks about the one who is the offender or the one who is lost. I think there's a couple different ways to read this. Look in verse 11. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains? and seeketh that which has gone astray. And so, yes, the Lord wants to save the sinner, clearly. We want to protect the kingdom, yes. But the number one objective, we must protect the innocent. But all three of those objectives are right there, contained in just a few verses. And I think what it does is it encapsulates all aspects of offenses and how we can see each other. And it's put in the context of a little child. And I really do like that image of a little child, the innocence of a little child. And sometimes I've used it in a teaching discussion. I'll show one of the pictures of my children when they were little. One of my favorites is when they were on the trampoline when they were little. And I would sometimes use that picture when I teach about how God views us. I think sometimes, especially when we get older, we kind of see our weaknesses, and we can see our faults and the ways that we are, are always falling short, and we can kind of be down on ourselves. But yet, when you, we look at pictures of little children, we can see the innocence and the beauty and the joy that is in humanity, and that's how I view Heavenly Father looking at me or looking at us. He sees the good in us, the beauty in us, and He wants us to see that in each other. Okay, so with that, Jesus goes into trespasses, and what do I do if my brother does something to me? And so look at verse 15 of Matthew 18. He says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not, well, then what do you do? Well, then you go and get two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. 
I like this for a couple of reasons. First of all, if somebody is offending you, the best thing to do is just go talk to them. And if you go and, and have a, a one-on-one conversation with them and say, hey, this is what's going on. This is why I'm offended and this is, or this is why I'm struggling. Uh, I like where Jesus says, you can gain your brother. Sometimes the person who has offended you, they don't even know that they've offended you. And if you call them on it and you do it privately, then you're avoiding embarrassment. Now, if you go and you tell everybody else that the person offended you and you never talk to the person, probably what you're doing is worse than whatever that person did to you. And so I really think this is a really good piece of advice about personal relations. Now, when it comes to litigation, when it comes to serious offenses, uh, this is Dallin H. Oaks. He taught this. Before Latter-day Saints initiate litigation, they have a duty to pursue the settlement of grievances personally or with the aid of a mediator. This duty is grounded in the same eternal principles used to counsel the saints against conflict and controversy. Since litigation almost inevitably involves contention and is prevented by reconciliation and forgiveness, these teachings stand as a strong direction for Latter-day Saints to use every reasonable means to compose their differences and avoid litigation with their fellow members members or others. And then there's more. There's a lot of really good advice in the show notes that we put about how do I handle this when I'm having a struggle with my brother and it's to the point where we have to get legal representation. I really like the counsel in here. We've got to work it out. We've got to go and the best thing we can do is one-on-one go and talk these things out. It's bigger than the offense. It's about saving the relationship. Now, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in Jesus' time, in his custom, the rabbis and others demanded that one begin with a private conversation. Public shaming of someone was considered actually unnecessary and sinful, and the Jewish teachers in Jesus' day stressed the importance of talking to somebody privately. And so Jesus is carrying on that cultural tradition, and I just think that counsel, even though it's 2,000 years old, still has value. So significant in our cancel culture today. People go right to the internet. They go right to public shaming. When how many times could they actually solve the problem with a phone call or a text or even a visit to the individual themselves and say, can, can we work this out between the two of us? Instead of just assuming wrongdoing and going right to the public forum and going to the internet and causing public shame, thinking that shame will change their behavior, talk to the individual, talk to the person. And see if you can fix that between the two of you. If you have, you've saved your relationship and you've saved a brother or a sister. Now, after you've dealt with them personally, there is an appropriate time for a lawsuit. And sometimes we need to take them to a higher level. But all of this is now couched in this beautiful parable about forgiveness and the absolute critical need to forgive. Now, before we jump into the parable, can I set it up by stating two doctrinal facts that the Lord presents in the Doctrine and Covenants? In section 64, verse 8, he declares one powerful doctrine. He says, My disciples in days of old sought occasion against one another and forgave not one another in their hearts. And then he declares, And for this evil they were afflicted and sorely chastened. Now, I don't believe, personally, I don't believe he's saying that he afflicted them and he chastised them. I think he's saying the natural consequences of an unforgiving heart will afflict you and it will chastise you. Because you don't forgive, you are hurting yourself. Now, this is where it gets a little bit sad on our part. First, someone else offends us and they hurt us. And then we harbor resentment in our heart, and then we hurt us. So first they hurt me, and then I hurt me. And that's crazy. And the Savior's saying, let it go. Don't be the cause of the second hurt. If they hurt you, don't have an unforgiving heart, because number one, it will hurt you. You will hurt you after they hurt you. But then verse 9 gives us a second doctrinal point. He says, Wherefore, I say unto you that you ought to forgive one another. 
For he that forgiveth not his brother his trespass standeth condemned before the Lord. For there remaineth in him the greater sin. Now that needs some explaining. How do you commit the greater sin by not forgiving? If someone does some horrible act against you and you harbor an unforgiving heart, what does it mean that I commit the greater sin? And the answer to that question is the parable that we're about to read in Matthew 18. But the question that precedes the parable is significant. Verse 21, Peter asks, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? That's the question that prompted this parable. How often do I let it go and forgive? And the Savior responds with this parable. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened to a certain king which had taken account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Now let Mike and I impress upon you the absolute ridiculousness of having a 10,000 talent debt. And how in the world did one of the king's servants become so indebted to him? 10,000 talents in modern equivalent. Now, Mike will get into the ancient, but in modern equivalent is 75.6 pounds or 34.3 kilograms. And this man owed 10,000 talents. Now, let's assume, I think the very nature of what Jesus is talking about kind of is assuming that this is a very expensive weight. So I'm going to assume gold. If he owed 760,000 pounds of gold, if we convert that into ounces, he owed 12 million ounces of gold, and given the modern-day price of gold, this man owed the king approximately $22 billion. He owed the king $22 billion. Now, this is not some oil tycoon or the manufacturer of a new electric car. This is a servant of the king. And he owes the king the equivalent in our society of $22 billion. Now, how about in their society, Mike? What was 10,000 talents to them? 10,000 talents is basically 100 million denarii. And that's, to kind of give you some perspective, one denarius is a typical day's wage for a common laborer. So if you worked 300 days a year, it would take you about 33 years to just be able to save up money for one talent. And that's if somebody else paid all your bills, like you're just saving all your money. And so it would take over 300,000 years for a laborer to earn 10,000 talents, and no one's going to live 300,000 years. I mean, obviously, Jesus is using this purposefully to really accentuate how bad off this person is with this 10,000 talent debt. Now, historians have kind of looked at this, and one of them is this guy by the name of Josephus, and he recorded that a year's combined taxes for the area where Jesus lived, all of Judea, Idumea, Samaria, and Galilee, and Perea at the time, so a lot of territory, all the tax revenue in one year in the time of Herod the Great at 4 BC, came to 800 talents. So imagine, you know, all this vast territory of the kingdom, the whole taxation for that one year wasn't even 1,000 talents, and yet this individual owes 10,000. So this is um, not even feasible. This would never happen, and it's, it's purposeful. Jesus is trying to stress not only the debt that he owes, but then he's going to compare it unto the other servant's debt. So ask yourself, who is the king and who is servant number one? You begin to make the application, I think, and the appropriateness of that astronomical number. I am servant number one, and my debt to my king, my eternal king, is enormous. My debt for life, my debt for every blessing that I've received, my debt for the forgiveness of my sins— I owe God $22 billion, and there's no way I on my king's servant salary will ever pay that back. So, verse 25, the law of justice steps in and says, for as much 
as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife, and his children, and all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant fell down and worshipped him and said, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of the servant was moved with compassion. And here's my favorite phrase in this whole passage. He loosed him and forgave him the debt. He was moved with compassion, loosed him, and forgave the debt. Now, compare that absolute generous act. What kind of king has the resources that if someone owes him $22 billion, he can just simply say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. I loose you. And Bryce, what ridiculous statement is verse 26? Yeah. Where the servant says, I'll pay if you, you have back. patience with me, I'll pay it back. I Not mean, in all of eternity. So it also accentuates the myopia of the servant. Yeah. Because he doesn't even realize how blind he is. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. Yeah. But watch what he does. Now, this act is comparable to you, the offenses people make against you. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get to. That same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. So this is servant number two, which owed him 100 pence. So like three months wages, basically. So pence is the plural form of penny. So if you work all day, remember Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, they're going to work all day. They're going to work from sun up to sundown, and they're going to appropriately be paid a penny. So it was a working man's daily wage. So it was approximately 100 days of labor. Well, if you figure even a generous starting salary of $15 an hour, let's suppose they did work all day for 12 hours a day, times 100, 100 pennies in our modern society would be around $18,000. Now, that's a considerable sum. If I owed you $18,000, I think I'd get a phone call from you. I think you'd insist that I pay it. But if you had just been forgiven a $22 billion debt and you insisted on the 18000 you would be insulting the king who forgave you. Your offense is not against that person. Your offense is against the king. You have insulted the generosity of the king who forgave a $22 billion debt, and you couldn't replicate that mercy. You didn't pass it on as a show of gratitude to the king who wiped out a $22 billion debt. You couldn't pass that on to someone who owed you $18,000. Now, because of that, when the king finds out, he calls him in and says, O thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all that debt because thou desirest me. Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. In other words, his lack of willingness to forgive the 18,000 brought back his $22 billion debt. His debt was restored because of his insult to the king in not being willing to extend the same mercy I received. And so if I am so concerned about you paying me for the offense that you caused, it's going to cost me my debt to the king. In other words, to gain 18000 will cost me $22 billion. And that's foolish. In no universe is that good investing. But the opposite is the opportunity that we all have. If you want to be free of the $22 billion debt you owe the king, you must be willing to free him of the $18,000 debt that he owes you. You must loose them of the debt. Now, I know people have done some horrible things to each one of you. And their debt to you is pretty big. 
But you have a chance to erase your debt to God by erasing their debt to you. I believe that your willingness and the speed with which you forgive others qualifies you for that same speed to be forgiven by him. It's a beautiful doctrine if you think about it. You control God's mercy towards you. If you want to be forgiven, then you forgive. If you insist on holding on to the debt that others owe you, then you are reinstating the debt that you owe him. And so I think the message is clear. Don't hurt yourself again. Be free of that debt. Can I share with you, with her permission, something that one of my students shared with me after we had this discussion? And she wrote this to me after the class, and she said, I can't begin to tell you how much this lesson has changed my life, Brother Dunford. In short, for years, I have been trying to forgive my dad for his cruelty towards me and my other family members. I was that little girl who never felt safe around her daddy. As an adult seeking for healing, I have met with priesthood leaders, therapists who specialize in trauma and have counseled with my Heavenly Father, but still my pain from my experiences wouldn't go away. Most of it, deep down, was me not wanting to forgive and release him. I felt like if I forgave, then it would make what he did to me okay, like no justice would need to be met because I forgave it, so it would be all good. It would let him off the hook. I wanted him to fix what he did. Now, however, I understand that his debt is not to me. The debt for my dad's sins has never been owed to me. His debt is owed to God. It is so hard to put everything in a text, but I just want to thank you, Brother Dunford, for teaching this lesson, which has allowed me through the atonement of Christ to do something that I've been trying to do for a very long time. I can honestly say that I forgive my dad. And forgiving him does not let him off the hook because he is not on my hook, so to speak. He's on God's hook. What a beautiful thing the atonement of Jesus Christ is. I am free. That's the erase of the $22 billion debt. That is the freedom that comes with fixing your relationship with God and being free of that debt. It really is freeing to forgive, and I think really Jesus is asking us to be free, and it's up to us. After his discussion on forgiveness, if you go to Luke 10, we read counsel to the 70 similar to what he told the 12 back when we were in Matthew 10. And so in Luke 10, verse 1, we read, After these things the Lord appointed other 70 also, and sent them forth two by two before his face into every city and place, whither he himself would come. Therefore he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest." Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes and salute no man by the way. He gives this interesting counsel in verse 7. Go to Luke ten seven. We read, And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house. You see, they were not to go from one house to another seeking better entertainment or better circumstance, nor should they expect or desire to be feasted, but they should accept what was offered, eating that which was set before them, thus sharing with the family. As their mission was urgent, they were also not to stop on the way or to make or renew personal acquaintanceships. That's James E. Talmadge, and that's his explanation of their mission. You see, they had to go into the places where the Lord would go, and by the Lord sending out the 70, he is expanding his influence in the world, but then also it's participatory. They're having the experience of what it's like 
to experience the power of Christ in the preaching of the gospel, the feeling of the Spirit, and the communication of the gospel message. And they're told to search out a worthy house. You see, the idea behind this in the text, it's not so much that the house is righteous, but that they're worthy in the sense that they could afford the expense of keeping them. These individuals that are going out two by two, they were to search out this worthy house in the sense that they were dependent on their benevolence to be fed and to be housed, give them food, give them lodging before they go out and continue their preaching. And uh, don't you know try to find a better house, just go there, and as they take care of you, then go preach the word. And that's kind of the counsel that he's giving them in Luke 10, verse 7. You could also compare this to Luke 9, verse 4, It reads, whatsoever house ye enter into, there abide and thence depart. And so go there, stay a while, and then go preach. And we read similar counsel to the 12, the quorum of the 12. And so really, essentially, Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry about those things. Don't worry about money. Just go preach the word. And then they return later in Luke 10. So if you go back to Luke 10. Go to verse 17. The 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. And behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Luke 10, 18 can be kind of confusing where we read, he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. We put a quote in the show notes from Joseph Smith that may help, uh, but I just wanted to reference that. And then there are different interpretations of Luke 10, verse 20. But one interpretation of this could be this. It could be that Jesus is cautioning his disciples against putting too much emphasis on the miracles that they were to perform, such as casting out demons or healing the sick. But instead, Jesus is reminding them that their true source of joy and security is not in the miracles and not in their ability to see them performed, but in the fact that their names are written in the book of life. In fact, the phrase written in heaven, as we read in Luke 10 verse 20, may refer to that concept of the book of life, which is mentioned in several places in the Bible. Some of those places are Psalm 69, 28, Philippians 4, 3, Revelation 3, 5, and Revelation 20 verse 15. This book, and we'll talk about it later when we get to Revelation, this book is thought to contain the names of those who belong to God and will inherit eternal life. I think if we read verse 20 this way, because you might ask yourself, why is he telling them not to rejoice? He's essentially saying in verse 20, don't have joy in the fact that the spirits are subject unto you and that you're doing these miracles. I think one of the ways we can read this is we see the Savior urging the 70 to prioritize their relationship with Heavenly Father rather than focusing on the outward manifestations of faith. And I think that would be a real challenge. I think walking around with Jesus, I think seeing the miracles that he's performing, we could possibly really get caught up in the outward manifestations or proofs. I know I like proofs. I love to especially see like some of the linguistic proofs of the Book of Mormon, and I think they're really neat. But at the end of the day, that's not the point. The point is my relationship with God, my relationship with those that I love. And so his physical healings, in my opinion, were a manifestation of what he really is after, which was the fixing of broken hearts. I think that's one of the things and one of the ways we could read Luke 10, verse 20. Mike, I just want to pay tribute to Shauna Edwards and a beautiful song she wrote and performed called The Miracle. It says that exact same thing. The lyrics say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus walked upon the water. He stilled the storm and calmed the angry sea. With his hands he healed the leper, he made the lame to walk, the blind to see. He fed a thousand people with a loaf or two of bread, and when the ruler's daughter died, he raised her from the dead. Jesus is a God of miracles. Nothing is at all impossible to him. But I know this, 
of all his miracles, the most incredible must be the miracle that rescues me. I love that concept. He walked on the water. He did all these wonderful things. But one thing I know is his most incredible miracle is the miracle that rescues me. That's the miracle by Shauna Edwards. Now, Mike, before we get to the parable of the Good Samaritan, I just, I wish to represent all of us in echoing what Jesus is about to say to his disciples. I Allow me to just personalize this. Verse 21, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings and institute teachers have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. What a blessing it must have been for them to walk with him, to hear his voice, to see the look on his face. Every time I read those verses, I just want to scream out, yes, do you guys know how lucky you are to have walked with him and taught with him and gone on a mission for him and seen him do all those miracles? Now, here's the funny thing. Every single time I scream out, I hear them scream back, and everyone else of all dispensations scream out to me, say, do you know how lucky you are to live in the fullness of times? Do you know how lucky you are to walk with the truths of the Book of Mormon in your pocket, to have Russell Nelson as your prophet? Do you know the work that you're doing to usher in his second coming? Do you understand the privilege it is to live in the day and time in which you live? Beautiful. And then we read the story of the Good Samaritan. We read in Luke 10, verse 25, that a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto them, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now I'm going to interject. I don't think the real goal here is to define who is your neighbor. I think the goal here is to define how you should love your neighbor in order to inherit eternal life. There will be another day where he discusses how do you love the Lord your God. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. That's a subject for another day. But the lesson here is how do you love? Yes, it's important to define who is my neighbor, but he's going to clearly define how to love that neighbor. That's what he's going to illustrate in this parable. So in verse 30, we read, Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was in the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and he gave to the host, and he said unto him, Take care of him, and whatever thou hast spentest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Now... Which of these three, thinkest thou, was the neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said unto him, He that showed mercy on him. And Jesus said unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Now, this is how we're supposed to love and how we're supposed to take care of each other. And we come to this earth 
And our job is to care for each other. And really, that is the Old Testament symbol of the birthright. The birthright child got the stuff because the birthright child was to take care of the family. And here in this context, Jesus is trying to answer the question that's brought to him about eternal life, but he's using some symbols that probably would have offended some of his hearers. You see, the lawyer was probably a Jew, and he probably didn't look at a Samaritan the same way that Jesus did, because Jesus saw everyone as children of our Heavenly Father. And so by Jesus using the Samaritan as the hero in the story that's doing the saving, I think what Jesus is trying to illustrate is how we see each other as well. And the Samaritan taking care of this Jew is a symbol for not only how we should be, but also a symbol for Jesus himself. Now, getting back to that idea of how to love, imagine just kind of a bar, and this bar is terrestrial love. See, I think coming into the church, we are expected to be terrestrial beings. I think coming out of the world and into the church, we give up the telestial. So now our expectation is to love at the terrestrial level. But he's going to make two commentary, the priest and the Levite did not love when love was expected. See, what should a priest do to a Jew that fell among thieves? What should a Levite do to a Jew that fell among thieves? And they did not love when love was expected. They dipped below the bar. And we need to beware of failing to love when love is expected. That's one commentary. But the other commentary is, no one expected a Samaritan to love a beat-up Jew. No one would expect that. They were expected to be mortal enemies. If anything, they expected the Samaritan to rejoice and maybe cheer that the Jew got beat up. But instead of hatred and animosity, what you got from this Samaritan was love. He loved when love wasn't expected. And I think that's the commentary. Jesus is pushing us above the bar. He's pushing us into that celestial realm. And he says, look, in that moment when someone has said something that is offensive and every fiber of the natural man inside of you is saying, be offensive right back, that's what the terrestrial side of us would say. You're justified in attacking back. But celestial love is to love when love is not reciprocated. It's to love when love isn't earned or deserved. I think that's what Jesus is teaching in this parable. Love when love is not expected. Now, as you go throughout this week, would you watch for the moments, the Samaritan moments, when love is not expected, where the terrestrial side of you would say, I'm justified in honking my horn at you or saying some derogatory statement because you've been rude to me? Would you watch for those Samaritan moments where you could be justified in attacking back and choose to love and push yourself into that celestial realm? I think that's the invitation of this parable. Absolutely. So John Welch wrote a great article about the story of the Good Samaritan, and he talks about going to this church where you can see in the stained glass, this story portrayed. You see, in the time period when these chapels were built, the stained glass were living scripture. It was as if the scriptures came alive in the glass. And as the light shone through the glass, they would look at these images and it would remind them of the stories that Jesus told. And in the stained glass that John Welch references, you can see this story depicted as man's progression coming to earth coming among thieves, and then being rescued by Jesus. And so you can see this really through the lens of early Christianity. The early Christians would look at the story, and they would see so many symbols for us and the plan of salvation, as it were. So the man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho could represent us coming from the pre-earth life. You see, Jerusalem is up in the mountains where the man comes down from, and Augustine wrote that it represented that heavenly city of peace, and perhaps it could even be tied into man's high state of immortality before he came to this earth. And then going down to Jericho is fitting in the sense of us coming down to earth because it's 825 feet below sea level. Jericho and the other settlements near the Dead Sea 
were the lowest cities on the earth. And so that really could be a type. Traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho could represent us coming down from heaven as fallen beings in a fallen world. Here, the individual is wounded. It says that he's half dead. In other words, cut off from the presence of Father. And then we have the Samaritan, who could be a representation of Jesus. Verse 34, pouring in oil and setting us upon himself or upon his own beast and then taking care of us. And then verse 35, paying for us to be made whole. Um, that could be a representation of the atonement of Christ. And so in, in one sense, the early Christians really did see this. They saw this as an allegory for us and the Savior. We put some really good commentary in the show notes about how the early Christians viewed this. It may interest you if you want to check that out. One of the early Christians, his name is Irenaeus, he's from 140 to 202 AD. He was one of the first people to comment on the story of the Good Samaritan, and he was writing in opposition to certain heresies that he saw in the second century. So he used the story of the Good Samaritan to buttress his point that God had conferred the Holy Spirit upon the church, like dues from heaven, protecting church members from being consumed by the heretical fires of the devil. You see, the Good Samaritan, to him, symbolized Christ himself, and Christ gives to his disciples the image and superscription of the Father and the Son represented by the two denaria, coins that are mentioned in Luke 10.35. In particular, Jesus' description of the Samaritan giving the innkeeper the two coins symbolized God giving his image to the leaders of the church, who gives the image to the man, restoring him to the image and likeness of God in which he was originally created. His argument and his use of the Good Samaritan in this way may give evidence that his Orthodox readers already understood the story in a broad, authoritative, allegorical sense. Otherwise, he could not very well have assumed that this allegorization would have carried much weight in his rebutting his heretical opponents. Essentially, what we see here is that in the second century, a great thinker in the Christian church was using this story to really buttress his argument against counter-arguments in the church. In the second century, there are already ideas swirling around that the church had lost its way. I find that fascinating as a student of history, that early on in the church, there were voices counter to what was considered the orthodoxy of the day, and that the early, early fathers are using Scripture to justify where they're coming from, and they're trying to strengthen the position of the church, and yet at the same time, there are other voices pushing against that. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting, in my opinion, I think Luke 10 verse 30 has a slight mistranslation. Look what it says. Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. Here's the thing. In classical Greek, the word kleptes and leistes had slightly different meanings. Kleptes referred to a thief, someone who steals your property or goods, while leistes referred to a bandit, a more violent type of thief who not only steals, but also uses force or intimidation or great violence to do so. You see, in the parable of the Good Samaritan right here, the man who was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road was robbed by a Lestes, a bandit or a pirate or a, a violent robber. I, in the Book of Mormon sense, we might even say a Gadianton. Um, as a side note, it is interesting how that term is used in the Book of Mormon. Uh, there's some really good work that's been done by John Welch on this. We link that in the show notes if you're interested in some of that stuff. So this is an individual that's an organized robber, someone who's violently taking your stuff, and that's what happens here. This emphasizes the helpless and vulnerable state of the man and underscores the compassionate and selfless act of the Good Samaritan, who went out of his way to help someone in need, even though the man was a stranger and from a different community. And I think that's important. They use violence in addition to theft. And so there were early Christians that saw this, that this man that fell among Lestes could represent the devil. John Goldenmouth or John Chrysostom or Irenaeus, they viewed Luke 10 verse 30 as mankind coming down to earth, falling amongst 
the devil, like his influence. Uh, Clement looked at this verse as human beings coming and falling among the powers of darkness. And Origen saw this as the angels of darkness. And Ambrose saw this as the devil and his angels. There's a lot of early, early Christians that looked at that and said, okay, this is us coming from this pre-earth state and we're falling among the powers of darkness. We are now going to end with the story of Mary and Martha. In verse 38 of Luke 10, there's just a few verses left, and Jesus is meeting with Mary and Martha. Now, we're going to see Jesus interact with them again when we get to John chapter 11, and they're very important. They're very important associates of Jesus. We read in verse 38, it came to pass as they went, he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus's feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. I want to talk briefly about culture, the culture and the time period of Jesus right here in the context of this story. You see, people normally sat on chairs or at banquets, they might recline on couches, but the disciples sat at the feet of their masters. We see this expression throughout the New Testament. Women could also listen to Torah teaching in synagogues, and occasionally they might listen to a rabbi's lecture, but they were not considered disciples sitting in the dust at the sage's feet. Mary's posture here and her eagerness to absorb Jesus' teaching probably would have shocked most men. You see, Mary's sitting here as a disciple, and I see Jesus treating her as such. To me, this is an important distinction. I read this as Jesus treating women as equals. I see Jesus throughout the narratives of the Gospels pushing against culture where women are put into a secondary position. And what I see him doing is elevating them to a status of equals. I really like that. And so that's kind of how I like to teach this, is to see how he's treating her as an equal. But there's other things going on here, aren't there, Bryce? I love this story because it means so much to me. As we journey through this mortal life, I like the analogy that the straight and narrow path is a path and that there are two edges to any path that you can fall off. And they're almost the extremes. And as we journey throughout this mortal life, one edge we can fall off is not doing enough, not working hard enough. And you'll see that rebuke in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord rebukes the idlers among them. And he says they don't have a place in Zion. So yes, there is a time and a place for the Lord to talk to those who aren't doing enough. But there's another edge of that path. And I speak to all of you who put so much on your shoulders. You carry such a heavy weight. You carry about the weight of your children, your grandchildren. You carry the weight of schooling. You carry the weight of financial responsibilities. Sometimes you carry the weight of health concerns. And I know that you have a tendency to do what Pharaoh did in the Old Testament. And that is, if you sit down to take a break, you say to yourself, if I have time to rest, it means I'm not working hard enough. It seems to be against our culture to just take a few minutes and catch your breath. And to all of you who carry such heavy burdens on your shoulders, I would tell this story. I believe this story is situational. Well, let me see if I can explain what that means. Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha, if we combine the three words and add one from the footnote, Martha was cumbered, Martha was careful, and in the footnote it says worried, and Martha was troubled. And this is that moment when I've allowed the things of the world to go a little bit too far. I'm pushed too far to the edge on that side of being overwhelmed, stressed out, with all that I carry on my shoulders. To all of you who are 
cumbered and troubled and worried, Jesus says, Martha, Martha. He double names her. It's a sweet little gentle rebuke, and I hear him say it to me, Oh, Bryce, Bryce, thou art cumbered and worried and troubled about many things. And one thing, in this moment, what is most needed is to put all of that aside and sit at Jesus' feet. Now, I don't think he would say that in every situation. I think in other situations, he would say, like Brigham Young said, when they found out at General Conference that the saints that were stuck in the snow on the plains were arriving in Salt Lake, he canceled the conference and said, you get home and you get ready to make them some hot food. He said, all the prayers in the world are wonderful, except when you need a baked potato. So he cancels general conference and he says, go bake them something to eat. So there is a time for us to say, stop sitting at the Savior's feet and go make something, go do something. That's another moment. But this moment is that moment where you have carried way too much on your shoulders and you are careful and burdened and worried and troubled. And in that moment, what is needful is to sit at his feet. One thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part. It doesn't say Mary hath chosen the better part. It's not necessarily better. Everything in our life has a time and a place and a situation. But for those of you who are carrying around such a heavy burden, right now one thing is needful, and that is to sit at his feet. Maybe that's just a quiet moment to yourself in your room alone. Maybe it's a trip to the temple amidst your chaotic, crazy schedule. Maybe it's a few moments in the scriptures. Maybe it's a date with your spouse. Maybe it's a walk. And I know so many things are piling up and you're going to feel like I can't walk away. But one thing is needful. Choose that good part. We need to be balanced in our approach, and that means there will be a moment where you do need to frantically make a meal because you've got a lot of people coming, but there is a moment where you need to step away from the hectic life that cumbers you and worries you and troubles you and commune with him and refresh that spirit. Jesus frequently did that in the New Testament. He frequently took time in his chaotic, crazy schedule where so many people were pressing him to step outside, to go up into the wilderness or early in the morning or to find a place of solitude and commune with his father. Let me leave you with this parable that I love and try to remind myself often that I need to be better at this, the parable of the troubled tree. The carpenter I hired to help me restore my old farmhouse had just finished a rough first day on the job. A flat tire made him lose an hour of work, his electric saw quit, and now his ancient pickup truck refused to start. While I drove him home, he sat in stony silence. On arriving, he invited me to meet his family. As we walked toward the front door, he paused briefly at a small tree touching tips of the branches with both hands. When opening the door, he underwent an amazing transformation. His tanned face was wreathed in smiles, and he hugged his two small children and gave his wife a kiss. Afterward, he walked me to the car. We passed the tree, and my curiosity got the better of me. I asked him about what I had seen him do earlier. Oh, that's my trouble tree, he said. I know I can't help having troubles on the job, but one thing's for sure, troubles don't belong in the house with my wife and my children. So I just hang them up on the tree every night when I come home. Then in the morning, I pick them up again. Funny thing is, he smiled, when I come out in the morning to pick them up, there ain't nearly as many as I remember hanging up the night before. Grant yourself a trouble tree. Grant yourself the ability to lay your troubles 
on a tree and connect with him and feast at his table and refresh your spirit. And then you can go pick up your troubles again and deal with them. It is my testimony that if you neglect those needful moments when you are so cumbered and so worried and so troubled, it will affect your communication between you and Heavenly Father. Eventually, the connection you have to God will be hindered. If you will take time to reconnect with Him in your busy life, you will find the strength to handle that busy life with greater energy, greater peace in your heart. Choose that good part. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we cover John chapters 7 through 10. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.